Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools are here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial every Saturday at noon to defend and to promote public education. And every week we tell you that that is not private education. It can be distinguished very, very definitely. It is education that is public in funding, but it is also public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. It should be public in ownership and control. It should be the only one that is publicly funded because it's the only one that's accountable. And the state and federal governments throughout Australia should provide the very best possible public education for every child in this country. Well, it's not happening. And in fact, In the coming weeks, as far as the funding issues are concerned, it's crunch time. Now, this is not the opinion just of the dogs. Uh, This is also the opinion of the Fairfax media. And here you have a commentator from the Fairfax media talking about this crunch time in funding. It's the debate that's worth $3 billion. For the past three years, state and federal governments have been duking it out over the future of the nation's schools. Does more funding equal better performance? A plateau in performance is not good enough at a time when we're putting record levels of funding into Australian schools, which has grown by some 23% over the last three years. The situation has now come to a head after the federal government pulled out of the final two years of the so-called Gonski funding agreement. Gonski redirects funding to the schools most in need, with the highest number of disadvantaged and poorly educated children. In the 2016 budget, the federal government confirmed it would provide $3 billion less in funding than the states negotiated with the Gillard government four years ago. The move has left state political leaders exasperated. New South Wales Education Minister Adrian Piccoli has always been a strong supporter of Gonski. He says the argument that money doesn't matter in schools is wrong. But his Federal Coalition colleague, Education Minister Simon Birmingham, argues that funding the full six years of Gonski is unsustainable and that record levels of funding for a decade have not yielded improved results. In September, a draft report from the Productivity Commission confirmed Mr Birmingham's argument. It found that despite a 14% increase in spending per student over the past decade, our performance in national and international assessments had barely improved. In some cases, it's slipped, 
Labor and the New South Wales government have argued it's too early to tell if the Gonski funding has changed outcomes. They've promised to continue lobbying the government for the extra $3 billion over the next three years. Now, the dogs for the last 50 years, and we have been around for 50, 60 years for that matter, uh, we have always opposed state aid for private schools, and we still do. We have a web page, and you can go to www.adogs.info, and you can see our press release, which is a commentary on what has been talked about in the press in the last week. And this is our take on it. The coalition needs policy is a sham. Public schools always lose out when public funding is diverted to private religious schools. The state aid privatisation experiment in Australian educational history is about to be exposed as a complete failure. The Commonwealth Federal Minister is confronted with an impossible problem as he seeks to keep the private sector happy while pretending to talk about needs policies. Senator Birmingham told his state counterparts last September that he intended to replace the current school funding arrangements with a simpler and fairer model, but the government has yet to finalise its funding proposal and it's proving very far from simple. Unfortunately, some public school supporters who are still wary of being called sectarian or who have a foot in both camps for family or career purposes are still romancing about the possibility of needs policies. Dogs have always called all of the various needs policies for what they are. They're thinly disguised voucher schemes that undermine public education funding. The only way forward for public education is the withdrawal of state aid to the private sector. However, as so many parties continue to sing from the needs policy song sheets, the vast number of Australian children in public schools, that's 65% and rising, are being badly shortchanged. The crunch time is catching up on all parties. In a letter to State Ministers on the Monday, the 3rd of April last week, Senator Birmingham said, The Turnbull government has consistently made clear that the Prime Minister and the State and Territory First Ministers would finalise future school funding arrangements at COAG in the first half of this year. Well, listeners, it's it's now uh, April, isn't it? And uh, only two more months to go. But acrimony over the future of school funding has deepened with federal and state education ministers meeting later this week despite not having a proposal for a post-2017 funding model to discuss. In a sign that little progress is expected to be made on the new four-year school funding deal, Education Minister Simon Birmingham has written to his state counterparts to request an extra meeting with them in June. Yet, faced with the usual religious school lobbies on the one hand and now articulate, newly invigorated state school lobby groups demanding state schools on the other, he has problems. New South Wales Education Minister Rob Stokes, who's followed on um, Piccoli, his predecessor, has said that he was still lobbying for the six-year Gonski agreements to be delivered in full. So he wants $3.5 billion per year in the next four years. 
New South Wales has acted in reliance on the Commonwealth's commitment and has a legitimate expectation that the Federal Government will honour their promise, he said. But Labor's Tanya Plibersek appears to be still taking the part of religious schools that are demanding certainty. All she can say is that schools need more than a few months to plan for next year. Uh, And uh, unfortunately, somebody like uh, Lindsay Connors who's done very well. Uh, Her career has been quite meteoric for a parent uh, back in the 1960s. She's done very well indeed. She, uh, all she can really say is uh, worry about the fact that perhaps uh, there's too many schools in the wrong places uh, and that uh, the private schools are not necessarily... Well, no, she doesn't really take on the private school. She's still not prepared to do that because uh, in her article, which is very interesting, uh, she lets slip that, in fact, uh, in her family, uh, they go both ways. Uh, There are children in both uh, private and public schools. So uh, she's almost getting to the point of saying that uh, we have duplication of facilities. She might get there in another few years after her career is finished. Uh, Meanwhile, the Stay of Our Schools facts and figures that have been coming out from the Save Our Schools website, which have been exposing state schools' disadvantage and the overfunding of private religious schools, not to mention the ridiculous duplication of facilities, they're starting to get oxygen in the Fairfax Press. In this last week, Henrietta Cook of The Age illustrates the inequalities of funding of two secondary schools in Cranbourne. So it gets a bit close to home when you use the examples, and there are many, many, many of them. These are used as an example of what is actually happening half a century after state aid was provided to the religious sector. And this is what she writes... According to the latest data, the State School Cranbourne Secondary College received $10,954 in state and federal funding per student, while the Catholic School St Peter's College, Cranbourne, received 12765 And that, of course, the um, St Peter's College also receives fees and also has, no doubt, other uh, sources of income. Now, it's a scenario that plays out across Victoria according to new analysis that has been released as hostility over the future of school funding deepens. The analysis by Bernie Shepherd of Save Our Schools, which was commissioned by the Australian Education Union, found that mid-range Catholic and independent schools in Victoria received more federal and state government funding per student than similar state schools in 2015. In the education state now nowadays, uh, remember Mr Andrews gave them the um, extra, the Catholic schools an extra fill-up when as soon as he got into power, because of course he comes from this um, this uh, system himself. Um, so we have an average of uh, eleven thousand nine thirty-eight uh, in government funding, and this was compared to. 11,064 for a student at a similar Catholic school and just 9,547 for a student at a comparable state school. So the independent school gets 11,938 per student, 
The Catholic gets 11064 for a student, but a public school student in Victoria is only worth 9547 So there you've got it. And this doesn't count all of the extras that the private schools get. The author of the analysis, who is the retired principal and public education advocate, Bernie Shepherd, said that the situation was just unfair because state schools had to enrol all students. Unlike non-government schools, they do not charge tuition fees. You have Catholic and independent schools operating under quite different sets of rules and regulations receiving precisely the same, or in the case of Victoria, more public funding, he said. And this inequity is worsening. Students in government schools are being sidelined by both Liberal and Labor governments. The analysis was based on the MySchool data for every Australian school and also showed that between 2009 and 2015, combined state and federal funding rose by 38.7% for independent schools sorry, 35.6% for Catholic schools, but only 17.6% for public schools. Nationally, the average independent school student received 8,743 of government funding, while those at Catholic schools received 10,479 and public school students each received 12,416. So Victorian government school students are in a much worse position than students in government schools in the rest of Australia. Now, dogs have been exposing these inequities since the bottom of the schoolyard schemes of the Catholic Education Office in the 1960s. Uh, These scams, whereby the Catholic Education Office did not even let disadvantaged funding trickle down from the wealthy Catholic schools to the disadvantaged, were finally exposed by the Victorian Auditor-General in February-March 2016. So we know that the Catholic Education Office, with Stephen Elder at its head, has not been letting the needs-based funding down to the disadvantaged students. And yet, when confronted by Fairfax with the figures that we've just talked about, the Catholic Education Melbourne Executive Director, Stephen Elder, had the goal to say the analysis did not compare apples with apples and was misleading. Well, I think comparing public schools that are open to all children with Catholic schools that are not, he's got a point there. Uh, There's certainly different kinds of apples. (laughs) He said, this is Mr Elder, that he did not take into account whether schools were primary or secondary, which cost more to run, or the growth in students with a disability attending Catholic schools. Well, the, the disabled children have always... Had, had much more of a chance of getting into a public school than into a Catholic school, so things must have changed markedly in the last few years. Elder said that Catholic schools that received more government money than similar state schools were disadvantaged. The Victorian Catholic system has decided to allocate more funding to these schools because they have high needs. And he said that more advantaged Catholic schools receive less funding than similar state schools. 
Well, that's not what the Auditor-General found. That's all I can say. So he must have changed things a great deal in the last year and there's no evidence to suggest that that's the case. Now, before he opened his mouth, Stephen Elder should have remembered that he's dealing not only with the Auditor-General and not only with an ex-principal like Bernie Shepherd, but with somebody like Trevor Cobald of Save Our Schools, who's a financial analyst and who worked at the Productivity Commission. These figures haven't just been uh, invented and they're not necessarily biased. They are the facts and figures that are coming out of the My School website. But the Independent Schools Victoria Chief Executive Michelle Groups Green said, the analysis oversimplifies discussion on funding for ideological purposes and school funding was based on student needs, socioeconomic status, disability, isolation, Indigenous students, school size and English language proficiency. It's a pity that Michelle Green did not elaborate on ideological purposes. Independent schools have long since lost their religious soul, so one can only suppose that, suppose that their ideology is one of pure self-interest. And if school funding was even remotely based on student need, then the public schools, which enrol the greatest percentage of disadvantaged children, should be way, way ahead of the schools dependent on public funds for survival that are only independent insofar as they can refuse to enrol any child on any criteria whatever. So the real education funding situation certainly is reaching crunch time. The middle class in Australia is being hollowed out and those who thought they could buy their way out of the public system are starting to realise that they have wasted their money, diminished their choices and cut off their nose to spite their face because students in public schools do just as well, if not better, once they get to university. It's not enough to bemoan the failure of Vonsgonsky and other failed needs policies. It's time to solve the root cause of the problem in the way that other countries like Finland have done and say that state aid should be for state schools only. So that's our press release and we'll have a little bit of uh, music after Robert's gives you a very important message from 3CR itself. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It's Robert here on the Dogs Program, the Defenders of Government Schools. It actually is that time of year where 3CR, um, as a radio station, want to hear from you. Well, you're hearing from us, of course, because we're on the radio and you're listening, but now we'd like to turn that on its head. We'd like to hear from you. Um, 3CR is actually all about serving you, the community, the listeners. And we want to know your thoughts, comments and ideas to help us shape the future of what's not just what 3CR is, but what 3CR can become. We're currently asking listeners to take part in a short online survey that will help us to know who you are out there listening. The results of this survey will assist us in continuing to be the best possible station we can be in service of, you get it, you, in service of you. That, that, that is the relationship that we have here at the Dogs Program and what 3CR is all about. It's about serving you. We are servants of our listeners. Um, 
Now, how can you do this? How can you let us know what's going on? It's really quite simple. If you have a computer, you can log on to it, and it's just 3cr.org.au. So it's pretty simple, 3cr.org.au slash survey. In fact, if you go to the website, I'm sure you can find a button that says survey, but if you go slash survey, you'll get to that to where you need to be to tell us what you think pretty quickly. If you haven't got a computer, and I know many of our listeners don't, that's okay. If you want to let us know what you think, you can let us know what you think. You can either give us a call on 94198377. That's 94198377. Yeah, you can do that, or you can pop in if you live around the corner. But I'm sure most of our listeners don't necessarily live around the corner to 3CR, so maybe give us a call instead on 94198377. We'll be back with more Defendants of Government Schools um, after a little bit of interesting music today. Um, If you ever wanted to know what gold sounded like, this is what it sounds like. This is just a couple of pieces of music played on a very, very old keyboard instrument strung with gold. And the music you'll be listening to us, a couple of estampes from, believe it or not, 700 years ago.
That's sweet. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. We are the Defenders of Government School, but we got a little bit of high culture in there as well. That was a Dorian Estampe for those musicologists out there um, from the Robertsbridge Fragment. Yeah, the Robertsbridge Frag- Fragment, um, which was which was discovered quite recently, but it was originally written in 1358. So yeah, right smack bang. That's high medieval music there. Yeah, that's the sort of thing they would have played at feast, not the roister doister, rompy stompy eater. Eat a pork chop with your fingers kind of music. No, very cultured they were. And what you were just listening to was played by David Kinsella on what is called a checker, which is a very early um, keyboard instrument because um, the English were good at making things up and that's what they made up. They made up a checker. And um, that was played by David Kinsella on a checker strung with pure gold. So that's what gold sounds like. Well, Let's get back to the serious business of defending government schools here on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial, and indeed a website. You can get the podcast at 3cr.org.au. Um, look, it's always nice when other people come to the same conclusions you do about what the problem is. And in the last couple of years, and I'm sure Jean will agree, there's a lot of people out there, people you probably wouldn't expect, who are now basically coming to the agreement of the dog's position as to what the problem is. Now, they haven't quite come to the correct solution yet from our point of view, but they certainly have identified the, the problem. Um, and Josh Bornstein, who's a, who's a journalist um, for The Guardian, but he's also a freelance journalist, has put together a very, I think, very thoughtful collection of outlines, sketches of what the problem with education in Australia is today. Now, what I'm telling you, or what, I, what, what I'm going to share with you, is not something that you, the listeners, will be unfamiliar with. In fact, it's basically what we've been saying, for, as Jean said, for up to 50 years. But it has a very 2017 flavour to it because in the 50 years that the dogs have been defending state schools, there's been changes in generations, there's been changes in culture. Australia is a very different place now than it was back in the days. But there are some things that are common and there are some things to stay the same. Now, Josh Bornstein is a younger fellow and he is a child of his age. Um, and he would like to think about the world as a post-neoliberal world. That is, neoliberalism is now coming to the end of its usefulness. But, he says, in the anxious... We live in hope. Well, he's living in quite significant hope because the sort of millennials are now getting sick and tired of being, being, being told what, what's right and what's wrong and they're looking around for them and they're looking at the generations that come before and say, well, how come we don't get to have what you had? Mm. Um, and the answer is, of course, because the older generations were the neoliberal people and they don't want to share with anyone, let alone their children. How come the robber barons are getting wealthier and wealthier by the day, especially the, the companies that don't pay any tax anymore and um, the poor are getting poorer and they're out on the streets for everybody to see? Well... What you say, Jane, is, is, is not just words, it's true. It's just true. The poor are getting poorer. The, the inequity on, on the planet today in Western democracies is about the same as it was during medieval feudal times when that music we just heard was composed and first listened to. You know, back with the peasants and the serfs, you know, the bonded, the bonded labourers, how many people out there in the workplace in Australia today would consider them to be bound to their job because of the debts that they continuously owe? Wage slaves, we call them now, 
and they were called serfs in medieval times. And the balance of, of, of wealth between the very rich and the very poor is about the same as it was in medieval times. That wasn't the case when the dogs first turned up in the 1950s, in the post-war. But now we're so post-war that we're going back to semi-feudal times, which you know it's popular to talk about as neoliberalism. But back to the nature of neoliberalism in education in Australia, because anxiety, the anxiety the parents have, the anxious race to get your child ahead of other people's children is a race that means that the local high school, just the local high school, which so many baby, baby boomers like to romance about, is actually now collateral damage. Neoliberalism might be unravelling slowly, but its legacy in education is living on. I'm quoting, I'm about to quote from an article um, in The Guardian on Wednesday the 5th of April, just, just the Wednesday gone. Now, Josh goes on to say that what's more important to your child's educational achievement, he asks. One, keep your home stocked with books. Or two, tip $250,000 of after-tax income per child into the coffers of your preferred private school. By the way, $250,000 is about your base level. It goes way up from there if you really want to get ambitious. So what's what's actually more important, buy books or send them to a private school? Well, it's a very simple answer. And it's, it's a yes-no thing, by the way. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a rhetorical question. The answer is the books. Uh, the books is the answer. A home stocked with books is more likely to ensure that your child does well at school. The correlation between a house full of books and a good education for a child is much, much stronger. The correlation is much, much stronger than what school they went to. Another thing, of course, is socioeconomic background in Australia. And I rail about this all the time. It is a fact that if you come from a wealthy family, you will be better educated in Australia. It is a disgusting fact, but it's a fact. The books bit is a fact, but it's a lot less disgusting. Now, for years, a growing body of research has been pointing to the same direction. Now, typical of that kind is a 2015 report a couple of years ago published in the Australian Journal of Labor Economics, which found that sending children to Catholic or independent primary schools has no significant effect on a range of cognitive and non-cognitive outcomes. The report uses data from the Longitudinal Study of Australian Children, which has gathered extensive data from about 10,000 children between 2004 and 2015. So that's a big study, 10,000 children between 2004 and 2015. By the way, in a labour economics journal, not an education journal. Now, notwithstanding research, and much research like this, in fact, Bernie Shepherd has put together some very good research, as Jean was sharing with you earlier in the show, politicians and parents have not been deterred from pouring enormous sums of money into non-government schools, private schools. The Howard government kicked it off and encouraged it and accelerated the shift by disproportionately allocating funding in favour of private schools. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the percentage of Australian school children enrolled in government schools fell steadily from 79% in 1977 to 65% in 2016. The remaining 35% share is made up of children attending Catholic and independent schools. Now, if the debate about climate science, and we're going to pull this in here, if the debate about climate science has shown the difficulty of fighting simple lies with complex facts, in what has been termed the age of unenlightenment. I actually, I actually sort of view it as, as the, 
as the end of the Age of Enlightenment. We're in it now. It started, I don't know, 16th century, and now we're just at the tail end of it because we are beginning to be in the Age of the Unenlightened. We are now at the stage where the next generation of people who are born are going to be less well-educated than the one before, not more. And this is, of course, correlated with the flight to private schools and has shed light on the struggle that ensues when profound, profound, and I'm not even going to say it's real, but I'm going to say it's profound, parental fear comes up against the research, the facts. Same with climate science. Profound lies are told by people, um, but the complex facts, the research that can combat those lies is obviously difficult to gain traction. But after years of degradation and neglect, the wheel might be turning now for public education. Recently published ABS data suggests that the exodus to non-government schools has stalled. Between 2013 and 16, the proportion of children attending non-government schools remains unchanged. In fact, it's gone down slightly. The journalist of the age, Ross Gittins, argued that it's either the case of parents heeding the research, that's listening to the research, or else running out of money to fund the rapidly increasing private school fees in an era of wage stagnation, or stagflation, as they call it, if you're in economics. The former Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, owned credits, of course, for the thing that she did, which was my school website. In fact, it's far too early to declare that the equity and reason in this situation has triumphed. The lull in what's termed white flight may not endure. The forces that have driven parents to abandon local schools, namely competition and anxiety, are strongly entrenched. Mm. They are inextricably linked to profound global economic changes. Recently, there's been a rise in a particularly aggressive form of capitalism. It's been propelled by globalisation into developed economies over the last 30 years, mm. and it's been overwhelming. A US philosopher, Michael Sandel, argues the West has been fundamentally transformed from what used to be a market economy to what's now a market society. And it was the Labor Party here in Victoria, in um, Australia that really promoted it with Hawke and Keating and uh, some of their, their ideas and arrangements are uh, at the moment under, under stress because Hawke got on very well with the business community and he still does. Yes, and so this idea of not just a market economy but a market society means that perforce you have to relegate things like right and wrong and civil responsibility, being a citizen, to the margins of the idea of what is good in life. Mm. If you can do someone over in a market society, then that is a good thing to do. If you do someone over in, 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 in what I would call a more a just society, then, that has, then, then there's prices to pay. Um, if if you're, what you're doing is not morally right and is against your civic responsibility, then you will be censured by the people around you. But in a market society, um, making money is doing good. Getting your child into a good school is doing good. Now, the rise of a particularly aggressive form of capitalism, which, we, which we've spoken about, and market values, including intense competition, have actually now displaced community values. Our culture in Australia has been radicalised by neoliberalism and its celebration of economic growth over all other values. In this realm, growing inequality is routinely and stridently defended and seen as a good thing. 
Baby boomers with multiple investment properties and large superannuation balances have pulled up the ladder and rope behind them. For 10% of the population with negatively geared properties protest loudly at any suggestion that the other 90% of taxpayers might cease subsidising their wealth maximisation strategies. The same malaise applies to the wealthy superannuants when it comes to the threat to their tax concessions. Low-income taxpayers subsidise the deductions, subsidise the allowances and the concessions and the outright tax avoidance of wealthy individuals and multinational behemoths like Chevron and BHP. In the same way, in the same vein, the notion that elite private schools should lose the financial support of ordinary taxpayers who could never afford the fees of these schools has been anathema for decades, prompting fierce comical cries of class war to be flung about. And, and as we've just seen now, um, Michelle Green and Stephen Elder, all they've got left to scream about is saying, oh, well, you've just chosen the wrong numbers. We've, we've got numbers that say something different. Um, there is no real defence anymore. And class war, I mean, if it ever was a reasonable thing to say, is now just, it doesn't ring true. It's like Bronwyn Bishop talking about communists and socialists in Australia. It's just everyone goes, you, you're mad. What are you talking about? But as it's years behind the times. Yeah. Anyway, behind the veneer in Australia of what we would call parental civility, there's actually been a war raging out there for a very long time. We, each of our parents, each of the parents, want their children to have a competitive edge, and they fret obsessively about their development and their future opportunities. If you're any doubt about this. If you think I'm just making this up, spend some time in the playground at a drop-off where parents talk about their children's 14-hour days juggling schools and seven extracurricular activities, which, of course, only the wealthy can afford. Now, echoing the tenor of the Gonski report back in 2013, gee, that's a long time ago, the OECD has continued to report that the highest-performing education systems across the OECD countries are those that combine high quality and equity. Education experts have documented the consistent decline in Australian international education rankings, and we've reported here on the DOGS program. And writer Julie Zerger, who we've also quoted here extensively on the DOGS program, describes the, the tendency of Australian governments to feed the hand that bites them by pouring even greater amounts of public money into elite private schools. Now, Australia ranks second in global wealth tables. Yeah, we are, in fact, the second wealthiest country on the planet. And yet we are more anxious than ever before. After all, what's not to be anxious about? You can be anxious about climate change, terrorism, an unprecedented global refugee crisis, the driverless truck, online bullying, sexting, and predictions that the era of meaningful, secure work is over. The middle class is acutely aware that even a stellar law degree is not enough to guarantee an offer of a job in a legal profession for a young graduate. All the while, all while this is happening, all while this fear is bubbling up under the surface of the aspirational middle classes, private school marketing, paid for by the taxpayer, is fanning this fire specifically. There is intense competition in private schools to display the best sporting facilities to showcase the $17 million state-of-the-art recording studios and the year nine overseas trips to visit the Dalai Lama. 
for the time poor inner city parents, schools are now even offering boarding through the working week. It's called the Learning in Residence Program. And our taxes are subsidising all of this. And unfortunately, on the other side of the world, in France, it's turning into the same thing. Last September, Thomas Piketty, um, who wrote uh, Capital in the 21st Century, unleashed a furious critique of the French education system, declaring that the levels of social segregation seen in secondary schools is reaching indefensible levels. The most upmarket French schools teach only 0.3% of pupils from poorer backgrounds. Middle-class French parents, like their Australian counterparts, have shifted their children out of local schools into socially segregated school communities, shielding the children from anyone who might even smell like they're poor. Although neoliberal economics has started to unravel, and we've reported on this here on the Dogs Program, its legacy lives on. If the teenagers living in our leafy streets all opened their front doors and walked in the right direction, they would arrive at the local high school in under a minute. But none of them do that anymore. Nevertheless, there are encouraging signs that all is not lost. The introduction of a needs-based funding started the process. A halt in the exodus has followed. More recently, the Conservative Turnbull government has led the way in starting to tackle the edge of the problem by talking about overfunded private schools. But before the local state school is to be embraced again, much more is needed. The objective of an equitable, well-run education system is too important to surrender. And this is according, of course, to Josh Bornstein. Now, he's got his handle on the problem. I reckon he's got that right. Needs-based funding, that's not the answer. It never was. But we'll be discussing more about education policy. Um, After a little more music, more of the sound of gold... This time not English tunes, not English dances, but a a Dutch one. Oh, isn't that lovely? The sound of gold here on the Dogs Program. 
It's a lovely little one called Captured by Love in Pinus de Moors. And that's actually not from the Robertsbridge fragment. That's from an entabulation in Groningen in 1400. So, yeah, we're bringing a bit of history to life. But after the nice, beautiful, gentle interlude, we're back to the business of defending government schools, aren't we, Jane? Yes, but uh, we do hope that in the future, Robert, you will be um, giving us some of the music that you're going to create from manuscripts or recreate from the manuscripts in our own, very own state library. Oh, looking forward to that. Yes, I'm sure we will. I've got a bit of good news here. Uh, We haven't heard so much about the tea person over in the United States lately, um, but people are fighting back. Uh, The problem with the current president is that he sees himself as a member of an imperial presidency. Uh, He, I think, thinks that he can kick the uh, judiciary and the intelligence community. And one wonders whether he can kick uh, the media, the federal agencies and the electoral um, group around uh, as well as um, Congress. Well, I suppose as we watch, we will see how many Republicans uh, want to have an imperial president. But in the education front, uh, it's not that simple in America. Education is locally uh, organised and uh, they're fighting back. They're fighting back at the local level. And we find this out from the Diane Ravitch blog. And on April the 4th, we find that students in Wisconsin Working Families Party swept the Milwaukee statewide education elections. The Milwaukee board tilts to public education majority and opposes the corporate operators and their profiteering. It took a lot of organisation. But this Milwaukee Board of School Directors now has a pro-public education majority after the election on April the 4th of all the Wisconsin Working Families Party endorsed candidates. So that's a big victory. And this election, they said, was part of the resistance to the dangerous troika of Donald Trump, Scott Walker and Betsy DeVos. And listeners, if you've been listening to us over the last few weeks, you would have found out quite a lot about Betsy DeVos. But over there in Wisconsin, the working families and their partners, including the teachers' union, had not were involved and corporate interests and privatisers could have succeeded in tipping the balance of the school board and carrying out the Trump agenda and destroying their public schools if they hadn't worked very, very hard. The anti-public school forces recruited and funded candidates, but they lost because the voters wanted quality public schools for all students. And in Wisconsin, they're building a template and record of taking on corporate operators and winning. And we need to do this in Australia too. Now, this Wisconsin Working Families Party worked for months 
to elect this slate of public school champions who they believe will advocate for more resources for the school system, fight off unaccountable voucher expansion and put forth an aggressive policy agenda that trusts teachers, invests in their student success and adds to the quality of life for working families in Milwaukee. So there you have it. Uh, This election marked the second successful Wisconsin Working Families Party campaign to elect a pro-public education majority to school boards. In April 2016, the Wisconsin Working Families Party worked with the Racine Education Association to elect eight of the nine candidates to the Racine United School Board after Wisconsin's legislative Republicans forced through a restructure of Racine's school district governance. Costly experiments with vouchers and the charter schools have not yielded the promised results in Milwaukee, Wisconsin or anywhere else in America. And a study by Public Policy Forum found that Wisconsin knowledge and concepts examination test scores for voucher students lagged behind those of the other students, particularly for voucher students who attend predominantly voucher-funded schools. And schools with higher concentrations of voucher students have a lower test scores than their public school counterparts on other, on other tests. Now, this Working Families Party, we can learn from it here in Australia, It's a grassroots political organisation and we have these kind of organisations here in public education. The Our Our Children, Our Schools organisation, OCOS, and also those who are fighting for um, public education in the inner city, they are comparable organisations. But in, in America you've got chapters in Wisconsin and a dozen other states which is um, pretty interesting. As well as a membership that spans the nation, this Working Families Party is working to advance public (coughs) policies that make a difference to the lives of working people, like raising the minimum wage, stopping bad trade deals, taking on Wall Street, tackling climate change and combating racial injustice. Working Families brings these issues to the ballot box and the halls of government at the federal, state and local levels. And I would suggest that they were probably behind uh, the um, Democratic candidate Sanders' very good showing. And uh, I always thought it was very interesting how Hillary Clinton started to sing from the same song sheet as Sanders uh, on education quite late in the campaign. I'm very interested in these song sheets today, aren't I? But uh, that's enough, I think. Uh, We have had a very good run today and we're very, very um, thankful that you've allowed us into your kitchen or your wherever you are listening and we hope that you will respond to 3CR's request that you contact them about your particular views on 3CR. Yeah, so if you do want to do that survey, and we please do, dear listeners, because the more dogs listeners do it, the better it is, it's at um, www.3cr.org.au slash survey, or you can call up the radio station. Just give us a call, uh, 94198. 
94198377. That's 94198377. But if you want to find out more about us, not just 3CR, you can at our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Anyway, till next week, it's bye for now. Mm-hmm.